Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas to you all. I know it's a few weeks away. You can have a seat. I know it's a few weeks away, but it's great for us to be reminded that Christ has come and we can celebrate that this whole season. Actually, within the church calendar, we're actually in the season of Advent. And the season of Advent is a season of preparation that gets us ready. Um, It's kind of fitting that we've been studying the book of Revelation because just as the celebration of Advent prepares us to celebrate Christmas, um, reading and studying the book of Revelation has been preparing us to celebrate the second Advent of our Lord and of his Christ. And so even as we've been looking in the book of Revelation, we're looking forward to a time when the Messiah will return the second time and we will be with him forever. Um, So this season of Advent, the season of preparation, the season of Christmas that we celebrate is a time to remember Christ's promised coming the first time and to look forward to his future return. Um, Lord Jesus, as it says at the end of the book of Revelation, come quickly. Um, So I want to add my welcome to, to this morning. My name is Jeremy. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here, uh, along with our amazing staff and team and elders. I'm grateful for um, what God is doing in our church family, and I'm grateful that you're here this morning. One of the things we like to do is we like to open the Bible, we like to read the scriptures together. So uh, I invite you to turn this morning to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in a Christmas series for the next few weeks here, looking at the book of Isaiah chapter 9. And and it's a a passage that is um, well known. It's a passage that George Friedrich Handel made a a, a bunch of kudos from when he wrote um, one of his hymns in the Handel's Messiah. Um, uh, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. You you know it, right? I hope hope so. If you don't, if you haven't listened to Handel's Messiah, once a season, you got to go back and you got to just listen to the story of Christ being sung through that amazing oratorio. Um, But as we look at Isaiah chapter 9, here's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. We're going to tear apart each one of these names that are given to the Messiah. Um, These names are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we want to understand what these throne names describe about the Messiah and how these are promises to who he is for his people for you and for me today. Um, So that's what we're going to be doing as we look at Isaiah chapter 9. As you're turning there, I was reminded this week of of how much I love um, lawyer-type shows, right? Like, I I love watching attorney-type shows. I love the back and forth of the courtroom scene. Uh, One of the shows I used to watch when I was a kid was the show Matlock. Anybody remember Matlock? Oh, yeah. Love Andy Griffith and the show Matlock. Uh, A movie that we watched recently was... um, 
Miracle on 34th Street, and there's George Bailey in that one, who, who is a, I think that's his name, who is an attorney for Santa Claus. Um, but I remember watching Matlock way back when, and I loved Matlock because I grew up watching Andy Griffith in the Andy Griffith show. So he's kind of like a, 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 like a warm figure already. But, you know, a person would have a problem, whatever that problem is, they go, they, they hire, or if they can't hire, Matlock comes along to essentially advocate for them, to give them counsel, to to arbitrate on their behalf. And it always took at least 45 minutes for him to fix the entire predicament that they were in, right? So it was about 45 minutes long and Matlock had come to at the end of it. Usually it didn't happen right away. Usually there was this back and forth and tug and pull and he comes to the end and he finds this one thing and he knows then how to advocate for someone. He, he is what they call a counselor. If you're in a lawyer type setting, uh, I only know this from watching the TV shows, mind you. Like counselor, do you have any anything to say. And then the lawyer stands up and he says something and he advocates for someone. There's the phrase that we're going to look at this morning and his name shall be called wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now, before we read Isaiah nine, the first few verses here, I want to set this up in context for you. In Isaiah chapter seven, Isaiah is given a promise of Emmanuel to share with the people. There's this promise that, that Emmanuel will come. A Messiah has been promised. And Emmanuel means God with us. And that becomes the phrase that is used to describe um, Jesus coming. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. In Isaiah chapter 9, we're given this character or this description of what the Messiah would do. Because when we look at names, <clears throat> names aren't just uh, a passing thing. Names were used to describe what someone in the ancient period would do. Most scholars think that these refer to four what they call throne names. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning. But four throne names that describe that he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. Um, and then later, a couple chapters later in Isaiah chapter 11, we are cued into Emmanuel's reign. And so we're going to take the first of these, um, or the middle portion of these um, conversations in Isaiah. The first one talks about the birth. The second one talks about what he's going to do, who he's going to be. The third one in Isaiah 11 talks about his, his kingdom. We're going to take this middle one and begin to kind of tear it apart a little bit over the next few weeks. With all that said, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word today. We're going to begin in Isaiah 9 verse 1 and read through verse 7. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people rejoice before you as they rejoice at the harvest, as they rejoice when dividing the plunder or the spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire." For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting or eternal father, prince of peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Our Father and our King, as we open these words of Scripture, would you teach us through the working of your Spirit what it means that we have a wonderful counselor, one to whom we can go with anything and we can trust that what we receive from you is right, it is good, it is true, and it is enough. Thank you, God, for meeting us here. We bless you in Jesus' name. Together we say, amen. Please be seated. So, you know a little bit about the context of Isaiah here, um, but I want to give a little bit more of the historical background, and we'll, and we'll kind of unveil this a little bit more as the weeks go on. We won't look at every passage here, but what I want you to notice starting off with is in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land, another version that we had worked on memorizing at one point said, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Isaiah is communicating truth on behalf of God to a people who are in distress. There are people who are walking in darkness, the text says. They're walking in darkness and they don't have light. Who is he talking about? If we go back a couple chapters, we'll find out he's talking about God's people, Israel. In fact, we're talking specifically about the people of Judah, typically when we're working with Isaiah. Isaiah has been given a calling from God. He's been given a call to go take a message about God to a people who don't really want to hear it, don't really want to believe it, don't really want to follow it. They kind of want to go their own way. The story of Israel, briefly in this point, is, is after God makes a covenant with them, he takes them out of Egypt into a great land. We're backing up a little bit. Um, he establishes eventually a kingdom. David, well, Saul is over that kingdom. Then David is over that kingdom. David is a king who has a heart like Yahweh's. Even though he messes up, he has a heart like Yahweh's, the text says. His son Solomon comes over and, and rules the kingdom, and he rules it in peace. Um, after Solomon, there is a breaking down of the kingdom. And eventually you go from one united kingdom to two divided kingdoms. The northern part of the kingdoms are called Israel. Say Israel. All right. The southern part of the kingdoms are called Judah. Say Judah. All right. So here's how it goes. I'll turn on my clicker here and we'll kind of show you where we're at. This is the land roughly of Israel. In the northern part, you can see the Sea of Galilee. In the southern part, you can see the Dead Sea. You've got tribal portions on both sides of these waters. <clears throat> and this is Palestine during the New Testament area. Um, Jerusalem is basically kind of smack dab in the middle, um, uh, just west. Let's see if I have a little somewhere right in there is where Jerusalem is. The Galilee region where Jesus ministers is up in the north and it's in this part and it's actually mentioned in today's passage. But what happens is during this divided kingdom part, you have the northern tribes here. All these northern tribes who basically apostatize and they go to follow the way of the world and the way of the pagan kings that come in and out and try to conquer them and actually do conquer them. And in 722, they're taken off into exile. Later, and we studied this with the book of Daniel, the southern portion of the kingdom, the tribe of Judah down in here primarily, um, is taken off into exile later in 586 B.C., 
Why do you need to know that? We're talking about a time in the context of this writing where Isaiah's ministry is about 740 BC to about 680. He's writing this at the time of King Ahaz, which was one of the, one of the relatively good kings uh, of Judah. But Ahaz has some problems in here. And one of the things that Ahaz has done is he has forsaken Yahweh. He, he has chosen, excuse me, Ahaz is a negative king, not a positive king. Um, his dad was a, uh, was a positive king. He was one who followed Yahweh. But his son Ahaz takes over the reins and he doesn't follow Yahweh. He goes in a completely different direction. And during this time, the land is in distress. And it's not just in distress because there's oppressive people coming against it. It's in distress because they've chosen to walk in darkness. They've chosen to follow what is right in their own eyes instead of saying, we want Yahweh what you want. These are people who need a counselor. They're people who need to be reminded of the truth. And actually, one of the hard things about ministries like Isaiah's and like Jeremiah's is God will many times tell them, look, you're going to tell the truth on behalf of me. This is your call, but the people aren't going to listen to you. Do you know what that's like? <laughs> to, to, to share the truth of God to a culture that doesn't want to have anything to do with it? I think we've got some company with Isaiah and with Jeremiah today. And these are people who, um, who would rather try to find their power and try to find their trust and try to find their faith in the gods of the land rather than in the God who'd saved them and the God who'd called them out and the God who'd covenanted with them. So when we talk about there's this gloom of a distressed land, it won't be like that. It says in verse one, in the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the Naft in the land of Naphtali, those two tribal portions are up in this northern part here. And they were among the first peoples to be conquered with an invading army. When Assyria comes in, Assyria comes in from over here, Syria's up here, they come in from here. One of the first places that they conquer and they take are these northern two tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And you fast forward a couple hundred years to when Jesus comes onto the scene, his ministry, Matthew 4 tells us, is in the area of the Galilee, which is where Zebulun and Naphtali tribal portions are. And so we're talking about a distressed land. We're talking about a land that has gone by the way of all the gods, lowercase g, of this world. But it's a land and it's a people that God dearly loves. And it's to these people he sends what they really need. In the midst of trying to find a, a replacement for a king and in the midst of trying to broker a peace treaty with the Assyrians in order to ward off the northern tribes and ward off the king of Assyria... God comes to Isaiah and he says, I'm going to send you a Messiah. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But this good news is coming to a people who are walking in darkness. I mentioned a couple minutes ago that, that these are throne names. These are descriptions of what the Messiah would be and do. Um, we know this even from historical records. Um, in the time of this ancient Near Eastern period, um, there was an Egyptian um, 
an Egyptian pharaoh. I'm trying to find where I have it in my notes. But he has a multitude of throne names. And um, he's described as um, one who would rule justly and one who would do this and who would do this and who would do this. When Jesus' ministry is promised by the prophet, these are things that Jesus would do on behalf of his people walking in darkness. Names are important. Um, When we had... Our, our kids, um, Ephraim, his name means fruitful. It actually comes from a Hebrew word that means fruit. Para means fruit in Hebrew. Um, Maya, her name means close to God. And Asaph in Hebrew be Asaph is um, one who gathers. Every one of our kids has a unique meaning of a name. Names in the ancient, ancient period had meaning. And sometimes it was to describe what that kid would hopefully become, who that kid would represent. When we look at the scriptures, we, we find different names, um, even for different kings. Some, some kings have different names, like one, one is um, uh, named this, and, and, but he also has the name of this. And a lot of times those names are used to describe what he would do and who he was in the context of God's story. Names matter. Names matter. When we named our son Ephraim, we were not saying he was going to be a fruit. <laughs> we were saying, um, it, it, number one, we like the name Ephraim. Number two, um, we had this verse in mind for Ephraim. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So that's been part of our prayer for him. When we look at Asaph's name, for example, uh, Asaph is a very famous um, choir leader in the, in the Psalms. He, he writes a lot of these things. He's one who gathers the people of God to rehearse and to celebrate the story of God. Names have important things. We lost the light. I don't know what happened, but we lost the light over here. Don't know why that matters either. When we look at names, we're looking at wonderful counselor. In, in Hebrew, it's the word Pele Yoetz. Can you say that? Pele Yoetz. Okay, so Pele, it's kind of ironic that one of the best soccer players, because we're in World Cup season now, is a guy by the name of Pele. Pele means wonder. It means wonderful, you might translate it. It, it technically means, according to some of the most you know, smart people, um, the one who plans a miracle, or you could translate it, the wonder of a counselor. So when we look at these words to describe who the Messiah is and what he would do and what he would be, this word Pele is not just a throwaway. Oh, that's wonderful, right? It's, it's not just a passing phrase. It's the one who plans a miracle or the wonder of a counselor. When you think about wonderful in this phrase, wonderful counselor, you need to think not small. You need to think really big. This is what he does. Can you believe this is who he is? He is wonderful. You know, there was a song that used to be sung in the church. I don't know when, but like, his name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. And those are the only words I can remember right now. And sometimes it was just sung with like, his name is wonderful. That's fine. But this idea behind wonderful is like, wow, you, like this blows your socks off because here's an example of how this word is used in the scripture. In Exodus 15, it says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, working Pele, working wonders. It's wonderful. And if you know the context of this passage, I'll give it to you. Exodus 15 is the song at the sea. 
It comes right after God has delivered his people through the Red Sea. They're, they're being led by God away from Egypt. They're delivered by God's strong right, right arm. And they're going out of the sea and on dry ground, mind you. And all of a sudden, God crashes that sea. And he wipes away all their adversaries. And this is a God who does wonders. This word was not small to the ancient people of Israel. They went, who is like him? He's doing Pele. This is like that best goal that you saw in the World Cup. You go, how did he do that scissor kick? That was amazing. It wasn't just like what I would do, I'd kick it and then probably miss it. This is like something amazing beyond comprehension. This describes a God who is far beyond what we can ask or we can imagine or what we could dream. Now, that's the word Pele. The second word here for counselor is the word yo'etz. Yo'etz. Um, yo'etz could be translated as counselor, could be translated as advisor. Um, one writer also wrote about it, and he said this. He says, it often, if not always, this would describe a high-ranking member of the decision-making council of the elders which surrounded the king. So the idea of counselor is not like, I'm just going to go see a counselor, or I need to get counsel somewhere. The idea of counselor is, I'm going to the very best of the best, because they're the people who surround the most important people, right? When you needed a counselor, and every king needed a counselor, and sometimes they had good counselors, and frankly, sometimes they had bad counselors, they would go and they would say, what should I do? Here's the circumstance. Give me some wisdom. Give me some counsel. It's a very wise practice, by the way. Um, the Proverbs say, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Um, when we make decisions here, we often consult many different people to help walk out that, that proverb, that, that general principle that helps us think through things. But here, the Messiah is described as the wonderful, extraordinary, amazing, beyond comprehension, wow, counselor, the advisor, the one who comes alongside all of these very important decisions. Because if you're the king, you're not left with, oh, what am I going to eat tonight? You're making decisions at this level of magnitude. And this is who the Messiah would be. He'd be one who would be a wonderful counselor, one to come alongside his people and to give them the counsel they need for the challenges and the situations and the difficulties of life that they face. Here's a way that this, um, that this, that this verse is used, and I want you to notice the distinction here. While human beings, we need counselors, and it's biblical for us to go seek counsel, God does not need counsel. In quoting Isaiah 40, Paul says it this way, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his, your aids, his counselor? Who advises the Lord? Who needs to advise the Lord? His ways are wonderful. He works marvelous, um, with marvelous strength. 
His, his, his wisdom is beyond fathom. Mind you, in Romans chapter 11, the context of this verse, the context of this verse is Paul talking about how God is not going to forget the Jewish people and he's going to regraft them back into the story of God, even though they have hardened their hearts against God. He's like, they've stumbled over the Messiah because the Messiah was not the person who they thought they might see. They, they expected a king, they expected a warrior, they expected a ruler to come in and to settle things. And here comes this baby onto the scene, this wonderful counselor. And they look at this baby who grows up with a bit of a sordid past because for as much as the culture knows, he was born out of wedlock because the marriage ceremony had not been completed between his mom and dad, Joseph and Mary. Joseph takes responsibility for him. They go, wow, he's been born out of a normal Judean, Galilean, Orthodox, Judaic um, lifestyle. And he's a wonderful counselor. You think that that, bite, that, that baby is going to be one who's going to be this? But this is how God works. He's constantly taking the, the wise people of the earth and exposing us for our foolishness and taking the foolish things of the earth and saying, can I give you some wisdom? Who has been his counselor? I think I forgot to tell you. So like at the end of, Revel or at the end of Romans 11, Paul goes into this doxology. Um, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his past. Who knows the mind of our God? Who has given counsel to him? Who has given to God that, we should, that God should repay? It comes into this like expression of praise at the end of Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Our God is a God who does not need counsel because he's perfect and holy and righteous and true in all he does. He is a wonderful counselor. In short, this, this, um, these two terms underscore the divine working of the Lord who brings salvation to his people, a God who does wonders. And a counselor in the midst of a culture in which everyone wanted counsel, but they wanted to go find it somewhere else. I was kind of rereading the surrounding chapters this week, and, and as I was thinking about this phrase, wonderful counselor, my eyes were drawn back to um, what, what um, Isaiah is told in Isaiah chapter 8. So if you would just kind of back up with me for, for a moment here. <clears throat> in Isaiah chapter 8, um, look, look with me briefly at verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again, verse 6. Because these people, he's talking about the people of Israel there, the people of Judah, um, rejected the slowly flowing waters of Shiloah, and they've rejoiced with Rezin, the son of Ramalia. The Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushy waters of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will overflow its channels, spill over to its banks. It will pour into Judah, flood over and sweep through, reaching up to the neck, and its spreading streams will fill your entire land. Emmanuel. What's he describing? He's describing that God's people have rejected him. They've rejected the peace and the wisdom and the grace and, and, and the, the sustenance that God himself has promised his people. And because of that, God is going to do what a good father does. He comes in to discipline them. He, he comes in to kind of shake them out of their slumber, 
and he's going to use the king of Assyria to do it. But at the end of verse 8, he says this amazing Hebrew phrase. It's not translated in, in my text here, but, but he's saying this is going to fill everything. <clears throat> but then he reminds him with this, Emmanuel, because God is with us. In the middle of this circumstance, in the middle of this travesty, in the history of Israel, God is still with them. He reminds them of that again. Verse nine, band together peoples and be broken. Pay attention all you distant lands. Prepare for war, be broken. Prepare for war, be broken. Devise a plan, it will fall. Make a prediction, it will not happen. Why? Because God is with us. Or if you didn't translate it, you could say, Emmanuel. Then God gives this little bit of wisdom to Isaiah. He says this in verse 11, for this is what the Lord said to me with great power to keep me going the way of this people. So he's, he's flagging Isaiah and he's saying, don't follow the ways of the people. Stay true to me. And he's going to tell them, he's going he's to tell them how to stay centered. He's going to say this in verse 12. Do not call everything alliance that the people say is an alliance. Their king is trying to make alliances with a whole bunch of people because even though God has said, if you trust me, I'll protect you. They want to go to the king of Assyria. Other nations want to go to the king of Egypt because there's all these battles happening in and out of the land. And they're looking at the political and the, um, the, the military culture of their time going, how are we going to be saved? How are we going to have sustenance? How are we going to care for our people? And their eyes as a nation are going, Assyria will save us from those two countries. Ironically, it's going to be Assyria that's going to not only take out those two countries on their behalf, it's going to be Assyria who comes in and is going to clean the clock of Judah. And they're going to be servants in like the not great way of Assyria. <clears throat> and, and God is telling Isaiah, don't buy what these people are selling you. Don't call everything an alliance that they say is an alliance. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You can imagine a people where there's constant invasion happening in this part of the world, where there's this, this unsettledness of when is Assyria going to come and get our town? When, when are they going to come in? And what's going to happen if they do? And how fear just ratchets up. God tells Isaiah, don't fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Why? Or how? Maybe you could ask. Verse 13. You are to regard only the Lord of hosts as holy. And when this word holy is used, I can't help but think, but Isaiah's heart and his mind is taken back to an experience he had just a couple chapters earlier in Isaiah 6 at his calling, at his setting apart for the work of God. God gives him this vision of the throne room of God. We saw this in Revelation. John experiences a very similar vision where, where um, he sees the Lord and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And there's these seraphim all gathered around the throne room of God and they're all proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And God tells Isaiah, how do you not trust in the alliances? How do you not fear what people are fearing? And his solution is you are to regard only the Lord of hosts as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. And my my attention was drawn to this next phrase, verse 14. Here's the way it's translated in the, in the HCSB. He will be a sanctuary. Stop for a moment. There's great stuff that comes after that. He will be a sanctuary. 
they knew what a sanctuary was. They, they knew what it was like to go up to the temple and you had the, the holy place and you had the holy of holies. They knew what it was like to go up and offer sacrifices. Here, they're not, they're, they're not being told, just keep going offering a sacrifice. No, because that's not the heart of God. The, the heart of God is, is, is in part during a season of time to offer sacrifices in that context for a specific reason. But the end is not the sacrifice. The end is God himself. He will be your sanctuary. And this, this struck me because how often do we, in trying to make alliances and trying to make sure that we have what we need with, with a culture that elevates fear in a whole bunch of different ways, how often do we go to look and to find our needs met some way, some place, some other way, and we miss the truth that he is a sanctuary. In fact, the New Testament teaches us that when we become followers of Jesus, we become his sanctuary. The person who is indwelt by the Spirit is one who, is belie- who believes that Jesus died and rose again to pay for their sins, that believes that there is no other way they can be made right with God. And God doesn't just say, come and worship. He says, I will be in you. I will be your sanctuary. In passages like Philippians chapter four, where Paul is writing literally from prison, and he's talking about how you can have peace in the midst of not peaceful times. What grounds Paul in that truth is the reality that Christ is in him. He need not fear what the outsiders say. He need not fear what the tabloids say. He need not fear what the government says. He need not fear what the other people of God may be saying. He knows where peace is found. It's found in a God who is the sanctuary of his people. Colossians chapter 2 reminds us, you can look this up later, All treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. See, the people of Israel, they expected a king, a ruler, a politician, a warrior to come and to rescue them. They had little concept that God meant what he said when he promised. Not a king, not a ruler, at least not completely. He was a king, he was a ruler, he he is one who rules and reigns. But he promised a child to step into the story of humanity, Emmanuel, God with us to be the Messiah. He didn't send his best servant, he sent himself. He he sent, as Pastor Tom said, the eternal son of God to stand in, to give his blood, to reconcile people who had no hope. You and I, we had no hope without Jesus. He sent his son Jesus to die, to allow his blood to be that which not just like covers our sin, but cleanses us from all sin. To, 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 to be one who doesn't just keep on a sacrificial system of going before God during that intermediary time, but to be one who advocates for us before the Father himself. He sent a son to become sin, even though he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And not just a partial righteousness, but to become the full righteousness of God. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, 
You are righteous, you are holy, you are set apart, you are chosen, you are loved, you are accepted. That is who you are. That's who you are. That's who you and I am. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with our flesh and we don't struggle with sin. We don't struggle to try and make alliances, but that's not who we are. And what God wants to continually bring us back to is don't be terrified about that. Look up. Look up. You're struggling. You're struggling with anxiety, depression. Look up. You're struggling through a family issue. Look up. You're struggling through an interpersonal issue at work or at home. Look up. Just as a reminder of, oh wait, the God who dwells in the heavenlies has come here to dwell here. And that's what he has promised in his word. I I love it the way that Dr. John Oswalt says this because he really kind of, he kind of gets this idea of the relationship God wants to have with us. He says it this way, God's presence is the one inescapable fact of human life. We will encounter him in one way or another. Those who make a place for him find him to be the glue that holds everything together. Those who ignore him find their lives to be askew and cannot understand why. If you find your life to be askew, I have two questions for you. Number one is, are you a follower of Jesus? And if you are not, I invite you to him today. It's not just to a creed. It's not just to a belief. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ means to jump in with all you got. All we bring to the table is saying, God, I I believe what you said. And God, I yield and I submit my life to your leading and your authority. That's all we bring to the table. We can't do anything to measure up to God. We can't do anything to save ourselves. We can't do anything to make this chasm narrow. But the good news is Christ has. We can receive his gift. We can receive the gift of salvation through Jesus. That could be your story today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to him today. If you're a follower of Jesus and maybe you feel your life is a little bit askew, can I remind you? Go back to him. I don't know how many times in my I was going to say life, and then I was going to say week, and I should probably say day. I don't know how many times in my day I begin going down a path that's really much more Jeremy-focused than it is Father-focused. I don't have to, we don't have to walk in guilt and shame. We can return back to the Father and say, God... I know you have plans for me. I know, God, that I am seated in heavenly places. I know I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God, would you work and would you, would you will what you want to be in my life through me? You can yield again to God today. It doesn't make you a Christian again. If you're saved, you are saved. But it returns you to the one who says, I'm your sanctuary. By the way, this is true for the people we find in our life. A lot of times I've given advice to people and it's been maybe practical, maybe even good advice. But when we know who our sanctuary is, when we know who the real wonderful counselor is, the way we give advice has to change. Because no longer is it, here's what I think. 
It's, could we pray about that? What do you think God would want from you right here? What do you think God, how do you understand God's word to, to give you instruction into this moment, into this challenge, into this situation? He's a wonderful counselor. Have you experienced him that way? Father, we thank you that you are a wonderful counselor. You're not just wonderful in a small sense of that word. You are wonderful in an amazing, overwhelming sense. And God, you, you are a counselor. The, the, the one who needs no counselor has stepped down into this world to be our counselor through the working of your son, through the power of your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that in you we have hope, in you we have freedom, in you we have forgiveness. Return us again, Father, wherever we find ourselves today, return us again to you, our first love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.